<coughs> hey, sorry for the late posting this week. I've got, I don't know, some awful cold thing. Um, kept me from recording for a few days. I also have the hiccups for some reason. I've never had a bad cold and the hiccups at the same time, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, luckily, I recorded almost all the audio before my voice completely went. So, uh, here's the show. problems I've run into when I've been reporting on and investigating this blog network is just the torrent of information that comes spewing out. There's so many details and so many little avenues that you could run down when you're looking at them that you just end up having to run past half a dozen potential stories on your way to get to the one you're trying to tell. And this is a real shame because a lot of these little avenues seem really promising. And I've even kind of, in my own time, followed up on a few of them. And they're just not quite enough to be a story, but they're really great. So, like, I just wanted to share one of those little kind of non-stories with you. So, this begins, uh, I want to back up and talk about where this project came from in the first place. Um... It originated with a guy named Steve Payne, who hired me to write a series of reports for a progressive coalition in the months before the 2018 election. Uh, The reports covered, like the topics ranged from Line 3 oil pipeline to federal crop insurance. Steve also suggested that I look into the corporate money that backed Islamophobia in Minnesota. Now, as I dug into the topic, no matter where I started, the trail always led back to the Freedom Club. And that research turned into a report for the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE Minnesota. Now, while I was writing that report, I read a lot of gross things about Somalis and Muslims, but John Gilmore was far and away the most consistently explicit. He once wrote, You can't complain when your children are bullied by feral Somali youth, for instance. Now, Gilmore is a longtime conservative blogger who's been active in Minnesota for a while, and he used to write an op-ed column for Alpha News. And there's this story that sums up who he is really well. Um, In 2011, Gilmore was in downtown Minneapolis for a conference that was headlined by Andrew Breitbart, like the Breitbart news guy. When Gilmore started berating two women in hijabs, now several bystanders intervened, and in the end he was arrested for threatening one of those bystanders. Now no charges were filed, and he might not have done anything wrong. But he did sue the city for wrongfully arresting him, and he lost the case. So, in summary, like, no charges, but the cops weren't wrong to arrest him. Now, Gilmore featured really prominently in one section of an early draft of the CARE report. But then it kind of occurred to me that he would just love that. Uh, This, just as I read him, it became really clear that he's the kind of troll who thrives on attention and would just revel in whatever awful thing I could write about him. So I decided instead to insert him as just, like, another example, like, like three or five or something like that, and I called him um, a generic, interchangeable propagandist. And he responded to me, uh, which, I don't know, I loved it. It was 
the warmest feeling I've ever had when I read his first column after the report came out and he said this. I also take exception that I'm an interchangeable, generic propagandist. Islamofascist Care Minnesota may not like my voice, but the last thing it is is interchangeable. Gilmore's last piece for Alpha News was one month and three days later. So I don't know how closely you've been following the impeachment testimony and inquiry for the, the last several weeks. If you haven't been, the testimony has moved through the House Intelligence Committee, and they are preparing their final report. They're reviewing it supposedly on Monday, and the Judiciary Committee is supposed to have their first hearing on Wednesday. The way it works is sort of the Intelligence Committee was hearing all the facts, compiling them, doing the research, the reporting, and pre preparing this report that they're presenting to the Judiciary Committee, which will then recommend articles of impeachment to the Senate. Now, the bulk of public testimony has been done, and I wanted to take this moment when we've got this little bit of breathing space to sort of review how the blog network has been covering impeachment and respond to any falsehoods they might be peddling. I was really surprised when I looked at them that none of the outlets were covering impeachment, except for Powerline. So I focused on Powerline, and they had all the falsehoods and excuses I could handle. So I just want to dig into a few of the specific conspiracy theories and falsehoods and arguments in defense of Trump on the Ukraine scandal. One. A tangled mess of conspiracy theories relating to Burisma and Bidens and CrowdStrike. For example, one quote from John Hinderocker. I take it as a given that Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma paid the Biden family a $3 million bribe. Now frequently, when media outlets refer to this, they just call it a debunked conspiracy, or say that there's no proof of illegal action by the Bidens in Ukraine. Uh, but one New York Times article goes into several specific conspiracies, and I'd like to talk about them. The first is the conspiracy that Biden fired Ukraine's top corruption prosecutor because that prosecutor was investigating Burisma, the company that Hunter Biden was on the board of. But that prosecutor was corrupt. He even ceased investigations of Burisma. And it was sometime after he stopped investigating the company that the Obama administration sought his ouster. And what Biden did was wholly in line with U.S. foreign policy at the time. Now, the second big conspiracy that's pushed around this is that the information security company CrowdStrike hid in Ukraine a hacked DNC server that would prove that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election. Now, this is my favorite of these conspiracy theories because, as many experts have pointed out, like, that's not how the internet works. Um, as the New York Times said, there was no single server and there was no indication that the company moved one to Ukraine. Now, the last of these conspiracy theories that the New York Times article talks about is that Hunter Biden himself is corrupt. Now, to be fair, Hunter Biden seems like a cartoon of a politician's spoiled son. It has even recently been discovered that he fathered an illegitimate child earlier this year. And his position with Burisma can only be described as sketchy as fuck. As I write this, right-wing media outlets are claiming that Hunter got caught smoking crack in a D.C. strip club. Now, I refuse to believe anything that right-wing media says, like, on principle and out of concern for my own sanity. 
But I believe this. <laughs> Hunter Biden is a shady, spoiled rich kid. But there's no evidence that he broke any laws in his dealings with Burisma, and witnesses who said they were concerned about his position have also said it didn't impact U.S. policy. All three of these conspiracies have been like written about explicitly on Powerline or implied. And they kind of dovetail very nicely with another defense of Trump. Two. Trump had legitimate concerns about Ukraine and the absolute right to set Ukraine policy. For example, in this quote by Scott Johnson. In other words, the president was directing policy as he has the right to do. Now, the problem with this is that Ukraine had twice been certified as having met corruption benchmarks prior to Trump canceling the foreign aid. Also, multiple witnesses have testified that there was no change to U.S. policy about Ukraine. Fiona Hill called it a domestic policy errand rather than foreign policy. Three. Obama didn't give lethal aid to Ukraine, and Trump was better to Ukraine than Obama. For instance, this quote from Scott Johnson. Wasn't it only yesterday that the Obama administration refused to provide lethal military aid to Ukraine? Obama, as I recall, didn't want to ruffle Putin's feathers. That sounds like an impeachable offense by itself. First off, there's some truth to this claim. Several of the witnesses, uh, who are nonpartisan Ukraine foreign policy experts, agree that Trump had a better policy on Ukraine than Obama. Like, in general, the exception being when he canceled foreign aid. Now, it's possible for Trump to have a better Ukraine policy than Obama and also commit an impeachable offense by withholding aid to Ukraine. And the, the distraction, the throwing this, but what about Obama, is what I'd like to talk about in a little bit more detail. You might have heard the term whataboutism. I heard it watching John Oliver. But there's actually a name for this fallacy in classic rhetoric. It's called tu quoque. But Wikipedia's English translation is the definitive name for this fallacy, in my opinion. Appeal to hypocrisy. Now, this specific way of thinking actually formed the basis of Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie's defense at his trial. Barbie was also called the Butcher of Lyon. Now, he wasn't at the Nuremberg trials because the U.S. helped him escape, which is a whole other story. But he was caught in South America and sent to trial in 1987. He had two lawyers. One was from Congo and one from Algeria, which had both been colonized by France and suffered extensively at the hands of that country. Now, these lawyers argued that France lacked the moral standing to convict Barbie because of their colonialist crimes. Needless to say, the court rejected this just flat out, and Barbie was convicted of crimes against humanity. Now, I don't mention this to compare Trump to Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, or the Republicans to Barbie's way out on a limb trying to defend a Nazi lawyers, but I want to put this argument in the proper rhetorical context. If one allows oneself to think like this, you will be able to excuse the crimes of the fucking Butcher of Lyon. Four. Schiff had contact with, or colluded with, the whistleblower. For instance, in this quote from Scott Johnson. Why is Schiff hiding the whistleblower? I'm guessing it has something to do with collusion. Now this one's a little complicated, but the specific claim of Schiff personally having contact with, or colluding with the whistleblower, are wrong. And the larger implication is just flat out false. Now at the beginning of October, according to a PolitiFact summary of a New York Times article, I just want to pause here really quick to say that I'm going to start asking for money in one of the next couple episodes, and when I do, remember that I need to subscribe to the New York Times so I don't have to cite summaries of New York Times articles. 
But anyways, as I was saying, at the beginning of October, according to the New York Times, according to PolitiFact, seeking guidance, the whistleblower turned to a House Intelligence Committee aide, who advised the whistleblower to get a lawyer and file a complaint with the Intelligence Community Inspector General per committee procedures. The aide then gave some of that information to Schiff. Then, according to the New York Times, again, according to PolitiFact, on September 17th, more than a week before the whistleblower's complaint was made public, MSNBC's Sam Stein asked Schiff if he had heard from the whistleblower and if he wanted to. We have not spoken directly with the whistleblower, Schiff said. We would like to, but I'm sure the whistleblower has concerns that he has not been advised, as the law requires, by the Inspector General or the Director of National Intelligence just as to how he is to communicate with Congress. And so the risk for the whistleblower is retaliation. Now, the general consensus is that Schiff made a false statement about his contact with the whistleblower, but that doesn't have anything to do with these claims. Now, Schiff did not have contact with the whistleblower. A committee aide did, and that contact consisted of telling that aide to go file a report, according to procedures. None of that matters, though, because the Democrats didn't call on the whistleblower or enter his complaint into evidence. Five. No harm, no foul. Isn't this quote from Paul Marinoff? The fact that the Ukrainian military was not set back by the hold-on aid supports a persuasive, no harm, no impeachable foul defense. Paul Marinoff is the one regular contributor to the network who seems to have not, like, chugged the Trump Kool-Aid, though he's really sipping at it. Like everyone else on Powerline, he's one of the founding members, he's been following the impeachment hearings and giving his hot takes every day. Now, unlike his compatriots, he can't completely dissociate from reality, for example, I don't have any glaring problems with his commentary on shifts in Nunez's openings. No, Marinoff is unapologetically conservative in this piece and offered some reasonable critiques of Schiff's opening before concluding, Schiff's presentation was largely based in fact. It advanced his case. He then says this of Nunez. Unlike John, I found Nunez's presentation disappointing. He tried to shift the focus away from Trump's conduct. Indeed, he had almost nothing to say about the underlying allegation. Unable to divorce from reality, he's landed on what might actually be Trump's best defense, though it's still pretty weak. Why did the White House reverse course and release the aid without Zelensky making the announcement of the investigation it had been pushing for? Probably because word of the quid pro quo had leaked. Politico reported that aid to Ukraine had been withheld. Senators were asking questions. There were rumors about a whistleblower complaint. Under these circumstances, the administration wisely released the aid. President Trump thus spared Zelensky of having to investigate Democrats, whose support Ukraine needs just as it needs Republican support. In a case where Joe Biden, however unethically he may have acted, clearly did not violate Ukrainian law. And Trump spared himself of a consummated quid pro quo deal. Trump's attempt to consummate one will lead to his impeachment. However, at least he has a no harm, no impeachable foul defense to make to the Senate, said Maringoff. Now, I'm no lawyer. But, but given my casual armchair law studies, it seems to me that attempting to commit a crime is still, almost always, a crime. Six. Dems tried to get nude photos of Trump. Look at this quote by Scott Johnson about Devin Nunes' closing remarks. Nunes takes Schiff's assertion that Trump's quid failed to net a quo only because Trump got caught, and turns the theme of getting caught against Schiff himself. Johnson highlights one passage from Nunez's speech in particular. They got caught trying to obtain nude photos of President Trump from Russian pranksters, pretending to be 
Ukrainians. If you're like me, that stood out during the hearing. Now, I don't remember anything about naked photos of Donald Trump, and that seems like the kind of thing I would remember. Well, this is what it's referring to. Hi, how are you? Hello, Mr. Schiff. Thank you for your time. In 2017, Vladimir Kizetsov and Alexei Stolyarov, two Russian comedians, contacted Schiff claiming to be members of Ukraine's parliament and said they had evidence that Russia had compromising photos of Trump, including audio recordings of Russian agents discussing the matter. It's basically the like Crank Yankers or the Jerky Boys, all that like 90s prank call comedy. That's what this is. So a few things to know about the prank call. First off, Schiff tells them he's going to loop in the FBI. Second, he expresses interest in the audio recordings, never the photos. And third, a spokesperson for Schiff told The Atlantic later that they reported the offer to the FBI as likely bogus, both before and after the call. There's even a moment near the end when you can almost hear Schiff roll his eyes. Earlier in the recording, the comedian says that two Russian agents use this, like, over-the-top, stereotypical spy password when communicating. And at the end, this exchange takes place. Uh, good, this is uh, very helpful. I appreciate it. Anything else you wanted to, uh, to add today? Well, I hope that my information will, will be useful for you and your committee, and I also would like to advise you, when you or your colleagues will meet Mr. Trump, I advise you to tell him uh, first part of the password, on the weather is good on Deribasovska, and look how his uh, face will change the color. Uh, and, and so that, that uh, those uh, passwords were used with, uh, with Mr. Trump? Yes, correct. Um, okay. Nunez's claim is not accurate, and it's needlessly lurid. So, is he lying, or does he just have such a casual disregard for facts that he didn't bother to look into what he was saying? Is there a difference? Now recently I discovered the podcast Trump Inc. by WNYC. It's amazing and everyone should listen to it. I got into it, and over the course of about two weeks at work, I'm doing a lot of data entry these days, I listened to the entire series start to finish. That was a lot of fun, because in the morning and evenings when I drive to work, I listen to 1280 AM The Patriot. They're the local conservative talk radio station owned by Salem Media, who we talked about two episodes ago. Now listening to Trump Inc. sandwiched between conservative media was head spinning. I remember in particular one day, I got into my car and tuned into the Mike Gallagher show to hear him raving about the impeachment testimony. He was blasting it as Russia hoax 2.0 and went on a rant about all the times the Dems had tried and failed to dig up dirt on Trump, from the Stormy Daniels case to the Mueller investigation and now the Ukraine inquiry. And they never found anything! Now this was particularly galling to hear because just the day before, I had heard the Michael Cohen episode of Trump Inc., where they went into detail about the criminal nature of the payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, and played the audio of Cohen testifying that he knew it was illegal, and did it at the direction of Trump. Cohen even provided an audio recording of himself talking about it with Trump. What Trump's supporters in the media and in Congress are doing amounts to a massive gaslighting campaign. I've been reading and listening to so much conservative media, I find myself doubting what I know is real. I have to remind myself constantly that you can't trust anything these outlets say. I have to hold on to my anger at their lies just so I can hold on to reality. 
But of all the dishonest coverage, perhaps the most alarming is Alpha News' approach, which is to not cover the proceedings at all. Alpha News published only two articles that even mentioned the impeachment last week. One was the news that American Action Network, a conservative advocacy group founded by Norm Coleman, was running two ads in Minnesota, one of which encourages Andy Craig to not support impeachment. But all that article did was reproduce the ad almost word for word with a video of the ad embedded in between. Now their other article was a reprint of an article from townhall.com, which is owned by Salem Media, the same people who own 1280 AM The Patriot. The article, called None Dare Call It Sedition by former U.S. Representative Gil Gutnicht, argued that the Democrats had committed seditious conspiracy by impeaching Trump, a crime which has a punishment of up to 20 years in prison. One of the major American political parties has rejected reality, and here in Minnesota, their media allies are calling for political arrests. Both are ignoring damning evidence of unprecedented misconduct by the president, and the rest of us are just waiting to see what will happen next. Now normally I don't recommend that anyone read any of these blogs under any circumstances, but every week I try to pull out a little special something for you in the read of the week. The read this week is past date, not on one of the blogs I choose to follow, and only relevant because it's the personal blog of John Gilmore. He actually responded to my City Pages article. He starts by writing about the Care Report, the first project that had me digging into the network, and he says, I made the grade, thank you, although I was weirdly called in the conclusion an interchangeable propagandist. I don't think so. My writing style and analysis is hardly interchangeable. And then, further down, before examining certain particular hilarities in the article, I have to give Carol some credit. It wasn't completely awful writing. Thank you, John. Unfortunately, I can't return the compliment. Now, one of my favorite lines. Next, Carol writes, you can't object when your children are bullied by feral Somali youth, declared Alpha News in a story last September titled The St. Cloud Times Shills for Refugee Resettlement. No, it wasn't Alpha News, Logan, it was me! He then goes on to explain how much he hates the center, and John Hinderocker in particular. He even sarcastically refers to them as the cathedral. I got excited here because there was a point he and I could agree on. A little further down, though, he accuses me of being in the cathedral, too, and then claims confusingly that... Muslims are the second greatest generator of hoax hate crimes, only behind students. It goes on. John, if you're listening, I'd like to talk to you for a second. I referred to you as John Gilman exclusively in like the first two drafts of the City Pages article. As we got close to fact-checking, I wussed out and changed it back to your real name, John Gilmore. I still regret this because it might have snuck past the lawyers. At least I obliterated nearly all mention of you. But John, I noticed you consistently misspelled my last name in your post. Carol, with one L. Touché. Special thanks to everyone who's offered me support. Especially you, Uncle Andy and Aunt Becky, and to all you early listeners. Find me on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. There's a few more platforms I could add to that list, so let me know if you listen to podcasts somewhere else. You can write me at logancarol at gmail.com or find me on Facebook at onbalance.mn. There won't be a regular show next week. I'm going to be working on some technical stuff, including getting a website up and running. And because it's my birthday and I'm taking it easy. But I'll be back with a new episode on December 13th. <laughs>